Welcome to the new BYP Podcasts. I'm continuing my discussion of the Mormon doctrine of deity, analyzing many different aspects, historical developments, changes, elaborations, contradictions, and harmonizations that occurs within Mormonism on this most interesting subject. Tonight, my selection to discuss is from Charles Harrell's book, This is My Doctrine, The Development of Mormon Theology. I note on page 99, although Joseph spoke of his revision of the Bible as a translation, unlike traditional translations of the Bible, he didn't actually work with ancient biblical manuscripts. Rather, he simply read the King James Version, and he made corrective changes and additions where he felt clarifications were needed. As he stated on one occasion, there are many things in the Bible which do not, as they now stand, accord with the revelations of the Holy Ghost to me. So he's basing his revelations, his understanding, his views of inspiration as ideas come into his mind as revelation of pure truth, scriptural truth. Now, chapter 6, the Godhead and the plurality of gods, the term Godhead in LDS discourse denotes the supreme governing council in the heavens, consisting of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. According to Joseph Smith, these three constitute three distinct personages and three gods. In addition to the three gods comprising the Godhead, traditional LDS teachings assert that an infinite number of gods exist, even above the God we worship. So this term Godhead, of course, it comes from the Middle English, and it means deity or Godhood, and that's the state or quality of being divine. And its meaning in the King James, it appears three times, Acts 17.29, Romans 1.20, and Colossians 2.9. And this underlying Greek in each instance also means deity or godhood. And when we read Paul's teachings, Christ was not in the Godhead, but the Godhead was in Christ. He wrote to the Colossians, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Colossians 2.9 So this qualitative meaning of the word Godhead has faded with time now to where the term is used in many circles, including Mormonism, as a collective noun denoting the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Now, although traditional Mormon doctrine of a three-member godhood is not explicitly taught in the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures, they do contain evidence of a belief in a broader heavenly council that carried out Yahweh's commands. An allusion to this council can be seen in the creation story of Genesis, where God is saying, Let us make man in our image. And this is Genesis 1.26. Well, the plural us has been interpreted in various ways, of course, and this includes a plurality of majesty and, in Christian tradition, the Trinity. And Theodore Hybert, writing in the New Interpreter Study Bible, states that here as elsewhere in Genesis itself, Genesis 11.7, for instance, God is addressing the divine council. 
And what this is, is an assembly of divine beings believed to assist God in governing the world and communicating with the human race. There is a large amount of evidence, according to Old Testament scholar G. Ernest Wright, that in the Old Testament, the heavenly council or the assembly presided over by God and composed by divine attendants and heralds and administrators was very well understood. This heavenly council has been compared to an earthly monarchy, with God sitting as king and the council members surrounding him as his advisors. So this notion of a heavenly council, however, this isn't quite the same as the LDS doctrine of the Godhead, since it does not depict a supreme three-member body. And also, the members of this heavenly council are inferior, and they are certainly subordinate to the Most High God. And there is no clearly designated Christ figure in the Old Testament and the Holy Ghost called the Spirit of the Lord in the Old Testament. The Old the Holy Ghost is never referred to as an agent or personal entity existing on its own. So when we go to LDS discourse, the term Elohim is used to designate God the Father, while Jehovah is considered to be the name of the premortal Christ. Now, in, in later podcasts that I am planning and working putting together, I will show how there is confusion with who Elohim and Jehovah is within early Mormonism. For now, this is just a very good overview of the comparison contrast of the Mormon doctrine as opposed to what we find in the Christian Bible and ancient Hebrew and possibly Greek Bibles. Elohim and Jehovah are used frequently in the Old Testament, but they are often interchangeable, and there is no clear evidence that they refer to two different individuals belonging to a Godhead. Now, this is very important here. At the time of Christ, the Jewish community from which the first Christians came was predominantly monotheistic, and Paul declared that there is one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. And we can also see Ephesians 4, 6 and 1 Timothy 2, 5. Although Paul professes a single God, he acknowledges Jesus as Lord in the sense of God's agent in both creation and salvation. So, in looking in the New Testament theology, there is a single God, often referred to as the Father, whose Son acts as his delegate on earth. Nowhere does the New Testament speak of God's, plural, reigning in a Godhead. Now, this is something the Mormon Church will not say. In a few New Testament writings, Christ is identified with God. You know, you have John 1 and 1 and 18, and John 20, 28. You have Hebrews 1, 8, Titus 2, 13, and 2 Peter 1, 1. To be sure, but never as a God or another God. So, like the Old Testament, the New Testament speaks of the Holy Ghost as a power or something like an influence— but unlike the former, the latter refers to the Spirit as an agent separate from God, though still not as a personage with human form. This is very important. 
to grasp how the Bible talks about this. The New Testament refers to the Spirit in a non-possessive sense, the Spirit, rather than strictly as the Lord's Spirit, as it is spoken of in the Old Testament. The Spirit operates on believers, it sanctifies them, it confers spiritual gifts. So the New Testament depicts Christ and the Holy Ghost participating as expressions of the divine activity, but not as individual gods. Well, most theologians agree there is no definitive doctrine of the Godhead or the Trinity in the New Testament. Now, when we go to early 19th century Christianity, there were two principal views of the Godhead espoused by clerics at the time of Joseph Smith. Trinitarianism, which held that there were three persons in the Godhead, and Unitarianism, which held that only a single person was God, and that Christ, though he was God's Son, was not deity. And heated debates took place between the Trinitarians and the Unitarians, and this peaked between 1850 and 1833 in New England. And this is where Joseph Smith spent his early years. So this is interesting that Trinitarian is the belief that although there are three persons in the Godhead, these persons comprise one God or divine substance. In 1826, the Methodist minister Elijah Bailey wrote a treatise criticizing modalists for maintaining that Jesus Christ is the eternal Father and that the Father and the Son are without distinction, where Orthodox Trinitarians held that the second person of the Trinity, in other words, God the Son, came to earth in the flesh. Modalists believed that God the Father became the Son through incarnation, thus becoming the Father and the Son. For modalists, the title Father and Son, when it was applied to Jesus Christ, these were intended to differentiate between his role as the eternal God, in other words, as the Father, and his role as the incarnate God, in other words, the Son. Now, in early Mormonism, the earliest LDS teachings portray the Godhead in recognizably Trinitarian terms, the trademark Trinitarian expression of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost being one God is given emphasis in the Book of Mormon. 2 Nephi 31.21, Mosiah 15.4-5, Mormon 7 and 7. And in the 1830 testimony of the three witnesses to the Book of Mormon, it concludes, And the honor be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, which is one God. This same classical Trinitarian expression also appears in the 1830 Articles and Covenants of the Church, which declares that the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are one God. December, or DNC 2028. So, this Book of Mormon and classical Trinitarian enunciation of a three-in-one God, this is not found in the Bible. It emerged as a later creedal formulation. It was first articulated by Tertullian in A.D. 200. In the Bible, the expression one God is used only in reference to God the Father. Christ declared that he and his Father were one, but not one God. 
Now, Paul was unequivocal in his designation of the Father as the one and the only true God, with Jesus being the only mediator between God and man. He said so in 1 Corinthians 8, 6 and 1 Timothy 2, 5, the Book of Mormon declaration of a three-in-one God, therefore, resembles most nearly post-biblical Trinitarianism. The Book of Mormon understanding of the Godhead has been characterized as a lay Trinitarianism with elements of both Orthodox and modal Trinitarianism using language that is mixed and sometimes inconsistent. Evidence of modalism in the Book of Mormon can be seen in language that depicts Christ as being both the Father and the Son. Abinadi calls the Son the very Eternal Father in Mosiah 16.15. In answer to Zeezrom's question, Is the Son of God the very Eternal Father? Amulek responds, Yea, He is the very Eternal Father of heaven and of earth, and all things which in them are. Alma 38.39 Well, today, Latter-day Saints understand this verse to mean that Christ is the Father but only in the limited sense of being the Creator under the direction of God the Father, who is the Father of our spirits, including Christ's. This is the Mormon view. In the Book of Mormon, however, there is no notion of spirit birth, and therefore no higher expression of fatherhood than that of being the Creator of all things, or the source of all existence. To say that Christ is the very eternal Father seems to be synonymous with saying that he is God the Father. As the prophet Abinadi explained, the Father and the Son are one God, yea, the very eternal Father of heaven and earth. That's in Mosiah 15.4. Well, this is much like the way modalists would say they are one and the same God and Father of all things. So the Book of Mormon, assigning, assigning of Christ as the very eternal Father, this makes it difficult to determine whether the eternal Father refers to the Father or the Son in any particular instance or if even such a distinction is intended. Uh, Book of Mormon passages speak of Christ as both the Father and the Son in an ordinary modalistic fashion, a sense that Orthodox Trinitarians would consider as a confusion of the persons. So the explanation of how Christ is both the Father and the Son is also modalistic. Now, when we read Abinadi's record, he states that Christ is the Father because he was conceived by the power of God, and the Son because of the flesh, thus becoming the Father and the Son. And they are one God, yea, the very eternal Father of heaven and earth. That's Mosiah 15, 3-4. Christ is designated as the Father, 
because he possesses God's power, or spirit, according to Mosiah 15.5, while he is the Son, because he became flesh. That is, he dwelt in the flesh, and he was made flesh and blood, bearing the image of man. That's Mosiah 7.27. Well, this notion of the Father and the Son being combined in the person of Jesus in this fashion appears modalistic and is not the way Orthodox Trinitarians or even modern Latter-day Saints would normally express the relationship between the Father and the Son. In current LDS discourse, Christ isn't characteristically referred to as the Eternal Father, a title generally restricted to God the Father, and we can see this in Doctrine and Covenants section 20, verse 77 and 79. Furthermore, Christ is currently referred to as the Son because he was begotten of God in the flesh, not because he was literally God in the flesh, as the Book of Mormon reads it. So, the Father and the Son are often combined in one person in the Book of Mormon in a typical modalistic fashion. Several Book of Mormon passages, which now refer to Christ as the Son of the Eternal Father, actually originally in the original edition referred to him as the Eternal Father in the 1830 edition. This first edition also had Mary as the mother of God, and it was changed in the 1837 edition to the mother of the Son of God. Well, these changes, what do we make of them? In part, they reflect Joseph's later tendency to more clearly differentiate the difference between the Father and the Son in his teachings as he progressed through time. Well, it appears that the dual identity of Christ as both the Father and the Son occurs only in the earliest teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith, including his early revisions in the Bible. A passage in Luke states, No man knoweth who the Son is, but the Father, and who the Father is, but the Son, and he to whom the Son will reveal him. That's Luke 10.22. Joseph's passage of Luke 10.22 reads this way, No man knoweth that the Son is the Father, and the Father is the Son, but him to whom the Son will reveal it. Now here we see something interesting. By melding the identities of the Father and the Son, Joseph Smith effectively interjected a dose of modalism into the New Testament. Most remarkable. Well, conservative LDS scholars who maintain that Mormon doctrine did not evolve they contend that the Book of Mormon doctrine of the Godhead is completely consistent with what is taught today. How does that work out? 
Well, indeed, most LDS doctrinal expositions of the Godhead assume a unity of teachings on the subject in the Bible, the Book of Mormon, and other Latter-day Scripture. And it's very typical of Robert Millett, one of the BYU professors, who asserts that the doctrine of the Godhead in the Book of Mormon is actually deeper and more penetrating than that found in any other book of Scripture, and that the Book of Mormon theology was not a part of a line-upon-line unfolding of doctrine in this dispensation. See, the Book of Mormon doctrine of the Godhead may indeed sound more abstruse than many later teachings of Joseph Smith, but we can't help but wonder if this is because it is deeper and more penetrating as Millet says, or if it is because its language was shaped by now unfamiliar early 19th century Trinitarian discourse. That would make more sense. So, from a current LDS perspective, early LDS teachings seem a bit vague and indiscriminate in referring to both Christ and the Father as God rather than as two distinct gods. An in-writing of this early period of doctrinal formulation, LDS historian Thomas G. Alexander says, there is little evidence that early church doctrine specifically differentiated between Christ and God. Indeed, this distinction was probably considered unnecessary since the early discussions also supported Trinitarian doctrine. Now, in the Kirtland period of LDS history, the teaching that God and Christ are one God, this begins to diminish especially during 1830 as the prophet began differentiating more clearly between the Father and the Son. And we no longer see the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost routinely called one God. Instead, they are now understood as three members of one Godhead. Now, remarkably, the 1834-1835 lectures on faith, these finally explicitly differentiate between the Father and the Son in the Godhead. There are two personages who constitute the great matchless governing and supreme power over all things. They are the Father and the Son, both possessing the same mind, which mind is the Holy Spirit, and these three constitute the Godhead and are one. Now, let's note something interesting here. At this stage in the development of Mormon thought, only the Father and the Son are designated as actual personages, and we see that the Holy Ghost is depicted as the indwelling mind, or even the power, which is shared in common between the Father and the Son. This mid-1830s perception of the Godhead has been characterized as binitarian, since it acknowledges only two persons in the Godhead. So, in response to the question, how many personages are there in the Godhead, the unequivocal answer given in the lectures in faith is two, the Father and the Son. 
So this is quite remarkable, different than the Book of Mormon, and yet not quite up to the modern Mormon Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints understanding of deity. We're beginning to see a movement, a, an evolution, if I may say so. In the Nauvoo period, this brought an increase in the distinction between members of the Godhood. And finally, we get the recognition of the Holy Ghost as a personage. In February 1841, Joseph drew on a popular caricature of Orthodox Trinitarian when he argued that the Godhead was not as many imagined, three heads and but one body. Rather, said Joseph, the three were separate bodies. Joseph now appears to be leaning towards social Trinitarianism. And this considers members of the Godhood to be distinct individuals who are one only in purpose and not in substance. Well, in May, a few months later, in 1841 still, Joseph reaffirmed that the Godhead consisted of three personages, and he differentiated their roles by saying this, an everlasting covenant was made between the three personages before the organization of this earth and relates to their dispensation of things to men on the earth. These personages, according to Abraham's record, are called God the First, the Creator, God the Second, the Redeemer, and God the Third, the Witness or Testator. So, while this idea of members of the Godhood entering into a covenant before the creation and agreeing to their respective roles in the salvation of man, this is entirely non-biblical. But it was an integral part of Reformed or covenant theology of the early 19th century. So we're seeing environmental influence here very clearly, because in 1823, Calvin's creed said, God from eternity made a gracious covenant or plan for the salvation of men. The parties to this covenant are the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Well, as a result of this everlasting covenant, distinctive operations are ascribed to each person. Creation and election to the Father redemption to the Son, and sanctifying and sealing to the Holy Ghost. Well, that Joseph Smith would later enunciate an almost identical covenant, even to the attributing of the role of Creator to the Father instead of the Son. We have a clear suggestion here of possible Protestant influence on Joseph Smith's thinking concerning God. In March 1839, Joseph first hinted that there may be more than one God. He said so in D&C 121-28. However, it wasn't until 1842, three years later, that he specifically referred to the Godhead as consisting of three separate beings who were also three gods. He seems to now consider them to be one only in the sense that they agree as one, while in his last public discourse, June 16, 1844, Joseph repudiated the Trinitarian notion of a three-in-one God.
Men say there is one God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are only one God. It is a strange God anyhow, three in one and one in three. On this occasion, he definitively stated that the Godhead consists of three distinct personages and three gods. So Joseph's teachings now concerning the members of the Godhead appear to have progressed. It began as a Trinitarian three-in-one God, and it had a modalistic flavoring, especially in the Book of Mormon. And then it advanced to a Godhead consisting of two personages, and they were united together by the indwelling Holy Spirit. And then it finally advanced to a Godhead consisting of three personages, and finally to a Godhead consisting of three gods. Now, one of the most distinct doctrines of Mormonism is the belief in a plurality of gods, and this is generally understood to mean that there are innumerable gods besides and even above the god that we worship. Now, all of these gods were creators of worlds and objects of worship, however. Furthermore, these gods were all once human. And just as they attained godhood, so can we. Well, this obviously goes against traditional Christian doctrine of human divination or theosis. What this doctrine states is that the righteous are partakers of the nature of God through the indwelling of God's Spirit. So, much of Joseph Smith's developed thinking on the plurality of gods seems to be linked with his interaction with the text of Genesis while he was studying Hebrew in late 1835 and 1836, and I will also show in another podcast how my friend Paul Shulam, Paul Osborne, I mean, showed that it was the Joseph Smith papyri itself that helped shape and guide Joseph's thinking into a plurality of gods. But the Hebrew also influenced him here very strongly. Under Professor Joshua Sykes, having learned that the Hebrew term Elohim was actually the plural form of God, El, he translated the book of Abraham to read, The gods created the heavens and the earth. Now, on March 20th, 1839, five years before his martyrdom, the prophet told the saints that the Lord would reveal to them whether there be one God or many gods. That was in D&C 121.28. He also spoke of a council of the eternal God of all other gods that convened before this world was. That was D&C 121.32. So, did he originally see these other gods as gods in the full sense, or in a lesser sense than the eternal God. See, when we read in the book of Abraham about the gods who organized and formed the heavens and the earth, Abraham 4.1 and then verses 2 through 29, it's generally understood that it's referring to pre-existent noble spirits rather than to resurrected exalted beings. Even though this is not required by the text, it is a very interesting interpretation. These beings may have been the individuals who, according to Joseph Smith now, exalted themselves to be gods 
even from before the foundation of the world, and are the only gods I have a reverence for, according to Joseph Smith. Abraham speaks of intelligences existing one above another, culminating with God who is more intelligent than they all. That's Abraham 3.19. So when we consider this notion of intelligences of varying degrees existing beneath God was actually held at Joseph Smith's time. And this is something today's Mormonism will not teach us. Very interesting. We have an example here. Charles Buck, Theological Dictionary, a popular 1830 reference. This records the existence of intelligences of a higher order than man, though infinitely below the deity, appears extremely probable. Wow. Now, LDS scholar Blake Osler notes that the plurality of gods, as taught in the book of Abraham, mirrors references in the Old Testament to gods in the heavenly council, and in this heavenly council, God is the sovereign Lord who summons emissaries of the divine council and sends them forth as his agents. Well, the theologians refer to this concept as malartrism, which is the belief in a plurality of minor gods that are subject to the supreme God whom all worship. This appears to be the concept portrayed in the book of Abraham. Now, in the late Nauvoo period, toward the end of his life, the prophet acknowledged the existence of even higher gods, and he reportedly taught that intelligences exist one above another so that there is no end to it. Well, what's the implication here? That there are intelligences even higher than God the Father. And in June of 1844, it was reported that Joseph was teaching that there are innumerable gods as much above the God that presides over this universe as he is above us. Now, according to Joseph, God the Father of Jesus Christ had a father, and we may suppose that he had a father also. Where was there ever a son without a father? This is in the King Follett Discourse. These teachings gave rise to the belief of an endless hierarchy of gods, with each presiding over an ever-expanding dominion of creations. And, of course, with the Old Testament we see traditionally is monotheistic. We do have traces of polytheism in it throughout, of course, and the earliest Hebrew conception of God was pluralistic, and it was only later evolved towards a universal uh, monotheism. The biblical scholar Mark Smith is huge on this. The early Israelite religion, he says, was not unlike other Canaanite belief systems and that the number of deities in Israel was relatively typical for the region. In particular, Baal was an accepted Israelite god. That's remarkably interesting, isn't it? And renunciation of his cult began only in the 8th or the 9th century B.C., but it goes way back earlier than that. 
and I won't skip in, I won't go into the details here. I'm running out of time, but I do want to get to the New Testament where the Christians there seem to have inherited the monotheism taught in the late Old Testament period. Paul was emphatic in proclaiming the one and only true God. Uh, and so this is interesting. Joseph says, Paul says there are gods many which makes a plurality of gods. He explained that Paul's assertion that to us there is but one God means pertaining to us, thus allowing for other gods pertaining to other worlds. That is how Joseph Smith interpreted 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 6. For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there are gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God, the Father. So non-LDS scholars universally maintain that the gods to whom Paul referred to were heathen gods. And he was contrasting those heathens who offer sacrifice to idols that are called gods. So it is ironic here that a passage in which Paul seemingly argues against a plurality of gods was appropriated by Joseph Smith to argue in favor of a plurality of gods. That is quite remarkable, very interesting. Now, another New Testament proof text, very important for the plurality of gods concept from Joseph Smith is Revelation 1.6. John proclaims that Christ hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. So in June 1844, Joseph Smith approved this verse as altogether correct in the translation, which it isn't, and interpreted his Father to mean God the Father's Father. In other words, Christ's grandfather. Now, while the expression God and his father may sound like two separate individuals, yes, this is a common convention in the New Testament, is to refer to God as the God and Father of Jesus Christ. Now, and it is the King James which gives us the ambiguity unto his Christ's God and Father indicating that God and Father both refer to God, the Father of Jesus Christ. Joseph Smith misread this verse. It's not surprising, however, given the weird wording of the King James Version. But Joseph Smith is supposed to have a, to be a prophet full of inspiration and revelation, and so this is extremely problematic. So this is one of several examples of how the prophet read monotheism into ambiguous biblical examples and passages early in his career, and then through a shifting of his theology, a growth, uh, we'll say, of his understanding of deity in the scripture, he began reading a plurality of gods into them. And it really puts an interesting twist about humans becoming gods and there being billions and billions of gods out there in the universe in an infinite eternal chain. But again, I must insist, in Joseph Smith's day, the cosmos was understood in the steady state uh, mode of existence. They did not have the Big Bang that leads back in time to a beginning. 
It was an infinite, long, huge, steady cosmos. In fact, Einstein put his cosmological constant into his physics equations in order to counteract the expanding universe which his mathematics showed him and he could not accept that so he put his fudge factor in there to bring it back to a steady state. Is that not remarkable? <laughs> It's fascinating. So this was definitely the picture of Joseph Smith's day in the 1820s, 30s, and 40s. So this is somewhat of a, a little bit of a historical background. I do believe next podcast I want to share the uh, confusion between Jehovah and Elohim and between Jesus Christ and God the Father. And this not only in the ancient Hebrew Bible, but also in the early Mormon leadership, and it went on for 100 years before they finally were able to manage a particular supposed coherent logical stream of theology concerning deity, but in order to do that, they had to introduce many, many fudge factors. And that will be my next podcast on the confusion between Yahweh and Elohim. In the meantime, we now have seen, based on this brief historical essay, that today's Mormonism God is not Joseph Smith's.